Welcome to the New Books Network. Close to 800,000 people worldwide die by suicide every year. That is one person every 40 seconds. These numbers mean suicide is one of the leading causes of death globally, with about twice as many people dead from suicide as from homicide. With suicide rates already so high, there's great concern and growing data that indicate an increase in suicide during this year of pandemic. It's a tragic and important subject. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. Subscribe to our series on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. I'm very pleased to welcome Jason Manning to the show today to talk about his recent book, Suicide, The Social Causes of Self-Destruction. Manning received his PhD in sociology from the University of Virginia, a theoretical sociology who seeks to develop general explanations of human behavior. His work focuses primarily on conflict and social control. Jason Manning, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Renee. Thanks for having me. Your framework for the book is pure sociology. What is that? Pure sociology is a general approach to doing sociology, or what you might call a strategy of explanation. Uh, The term Thomas Kuhn, philosopher and historian of science, coined was paradigm. That's become a bit of a corporate buzzword since then, though. But it's just a general way of trying to approach human behavior and explain it. And it was developed by sociologist Donald Black in the 1970s in his work on the study of law. And then eventually he expanded his work to the study of other ways of handling disputes. But it conceives of human behavior as different forms of social life is this term. So we're trying to explain things like uh, the pattern of behavior as such, like lawsuits, when do lawsuits happen? When does law enter a conflict? Uh, When does violence enter a conflict? When does violence enter a situation? And you try to explain it with the distances and directions that this form of social life is acting across. And by distance and direction, we mean things like how tightly related people are in the interaction. Is this an interaction between intimates or strangers? Is it an interaction between people from the same cultural group or from different cultural groups? These things are kinds of social distance, and the greater the social distance is, that has effects on what sort of social life one gets or what quantities and uh, patterns of social life happen. We also talk about things like the direction of the behavior. Is it, for example, if it's an act of violence or an act of uh, expressing grievances, is this directed at a social superior, such as someone who's of a higher class level, a boss in the workplace, a member of uh, the government or some authority figure, or is it directed downward towards someone who's poorer or has less authority or less social stature? And these sorts of patterns combined and with various ways of measuring these things uh, help us predict the differences in the quantity and form and timing of social life. And so what patterns of interaction occur depend on the structure of the relationships between everybody involved in some instance of human behavior. 
And so the goal is to try to map out and specify how different behaviors vary with the structure of those relationships. And how do the more commonly understood factors involved in suicide, depression, impulsivity, psychosis, drug and alcohol addiction, how do those kinds of things fit in with your book's viewpoint? Uh, Some of them are just things that I wouldn't consider directly. Like I'm explaining a different sort of variation than the conventional approaches do. Like conventional approaches are often concerned with variation across individuals from one individual to the next. So why does person A uh, commit suicide and person B does not? And it's focused on, you know, individual proclivities, something about their mind, their genetic makeup, their, their mental states and habits makes one person more predisposed to the action than another person. And all that's true. It's not something I'm arguing against at all. But I'm looking at a different kind of variation, which is even, you know, two individuals with very similar predispositions, uh, depending what situations they find themselves in, one might be more likely to do it than another. And also, even that person who has a predisposition towards doing it, I mean, why did they do it when they did? Why, why was it this year when they lost their job and not two years ago when they were riding high and doing fine? And my example hints at my answer, which is things like losing jobs and so forth. These external uh, factors and, and situations, they explain some of the variation in when and where suicide occurs. And they also help explain things like variation and patterns you get across different cultures or societies or time periods. So to one extent, I'm just trying to explain things that are different than what the more conventional approaches try to explain. And so I have to look at different factors than what the conventional approaches look at. And to some extent, there's some room for individual factors to be reconceptualized and integrated into a more social or structural approach. Uh, For example, um, one thing I talk about in the book is that we might partially understand depression, not just as, you know, the, the neurotransmitter imbalances and things like that, but as a, a form of conflict, a person, you know, expressing grievances against themselves and judging themselves by, you know, standards that are socially shared, but judging themselves harshly by those. And sometimes we can understand interventions such as psychotherapy as a way of managing conflict. Somebody is coming in and trying to smooth over and soothe this conflict in much the same way they might try to intervene in a conflict between two different individuals and make peace with them. So there's some room to try to merge these approaches by conceptualizing things in a slightly different light. But I would say in the main, um, mostly explaining a different kind of variation than what psychologists and psychiatrists address. Uh-huh. So there really is no conflict between those two points of views, the, the individual internal aspect of it and the sociological uh, explanation of the variation. I think some Uh, intellectuals would try to set up a conflict, but I think it's mostly a rhetorical strategy. (laughs) (laughs) Really? (laughs) You think our colleagues might be guilty of that? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's something I even talk about with my graduate students. It's an age-old, you know, uh, your theories are wrong because they don't explain this thing, but really... For any, any category of behavior, there's usually multiple aspects 
or multiple uh, kinds of variation we're trying to explain. It's rare in my experience to see two explanations that are legitimately uh, contradictory in that one being true means the other must be wrong. Right. Mm. Right. I agree with you on that. Uh, you, you use a term in the book that I was not familiar with, moralistic suicide. Explain that, if you will. Sure. Um, that comes out of the study of conflict and the way people handle grievances. And it comes from uh, another term created by Donald Black, which is moralistic violence. And his idea is that a lot of violence, well, we tend to think of, you know, most like criminal violence, for example, as something immoral, uh, example of a profound lack of morality. He points out that if you actually look at what people fight and hurt each other over, it's usually conflicts. It's usually people expressing grievances. It's usually someone mad at something else for some perceived wrongdoing. Now, it might be a wrongdoing that to the third party doesn't seem wrong at all, or that the response is very disproportionate. But you could say the same thing about a lot of legal punishments throughout history as well, uh, executions and torture by the state and so forth. And his idea is really that these things are all of a kind. A lot of violence in human society is a way of pursuing justice in the sense of expressing grievances and punishing somebody who's wronged you, at least in your eyes, somehow. And so he came up with this category of moralistic violence to encompass all of that violence that expresses and handles grievances. And you can contrast that with things like predatory violence, which is just purely for gain. You know, the armed robber doesn't necessarily pick his target for any other reason than that they have a wallet and he wants money. There's no prior relationship or history of conflict or any sort of you've made me angry situation going on there. So there was that concept already of moralistic violence. And when I got into studying suicide, um, one of the ideas, and this comes from work by Donald Black, MP Baumgartner, but also anthropologists uh, like MDW Jeffries have talked about this before. Uh, Klaus Friedrich Koch talks about this, which is that a lot of suicide is a way of handling grievances. A lot of suicide is a way of pursuing justice. A lot of suicidal behavior is a way of managing conflict in one way or another. And to give a really... Um, I think pretty clear example, I often talk about protest suicide. So probably the most famous one in modern history would be the Buddhist monk, Thich Quang Duc, who burned himself to death in Saigon in 1963 to protest the Vietnamese government's suppression of Buddhism. And he lit himself on fire while a fellow monks handed out pamphlets uh, explaining he was dying for this cause. And he left a letter addressed to the president imploring him to pursue a policy of religious equality. And photographers were there to take photos of this. And it influenced U.S. Uh, approaches to the Vietnamese government. So it was self-killing as an act of pursuing justice, of, of trying to address some perceived wrongdoing. Right. right. Yes, there's a more recent famous example, too, in Tunisia that right. uh, set off the what the media called the Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. uh, but you did your own empirical work on suicide using coroner's records. T tell us about that study and also its limitations. Okay. Well, yeah, I felt when I started doing this work, I, I mostly, it's like I'm a theoretical sociologist, so a lot of what I do is just looking for patterns in the information that's already out there and trying to summarize those patterns in the most abstract way I can. But... 
I wanted to get down and actually look at cases because a lot of sociology of suicide, and I'm not knocking the research, it's good at what it does, but a lot of it is very much focused on just comparing rates. So you take the rates of the city, the state, the nation, and you track them over time or compare them for different demographic groups, which can be useful. But I, to get at this kind of suicide I'm interested in studying, the kind where people kill themselves over some conflict or grievance or interpersonal dispute, I needed to know why they did it. And that's not something that's visible in the rates, the actual interaction and the reason for it. And so I was able to make contact with a coroner's office and they allowed me you know, under conditions, normal research conditions of keeping the individual subjects uh, confidential. So I don't you know, include any real names or such in my, in my writing. But I went there and I started looking through just hundreds and hundreds of suicide cases, which let me tell you is an odd month to spend <laughs> as, yeah. as a young man reading suicide cases and, and uh, learning a lot more about what these things look like up close, what sort of events provoked them. And you mentioned limitations and I'll just say that you know, the, the, the records are you know, the, the records are there for official purposes, not for scientific ones. So these, these, uh, coroners and homicide detectives who record all this information aren't necessarily measuring variables that I would like them to measure or paying attention to things I would like them to pay attention to. But you still get a lot of information out of some of these cases about, you know, they interview the next of kin, the family and friends of the deceased about what was going on in their life, what might've had them upset. And they collect any suicide notes that were left behind, which there are at about 15% of cases. And in some cases, you even get you know, more information than that. Like a couple of the deceased left diaries and you got to see their suicide plan evolve over time and, and their situation deteriorate over time in the course of these diaries, which spending a day reading someone's diary leading up to their suicide is a, a sobering experience. It puts you much more close to their, their mind state than uh, some of the other sources might. But I, I did I do this kind of archival research looking at coroner's records, which are the product of these deputy coroners and homicide detectives interviewing people and collecting evidence. And that gives me a better idea of what suicide looks like at the ground level at the individual case. But again, sometimes the records are spotty. Sometimes we just don't know much about why a person did it. They didn't have many friends or family or occasionally those people either are genuinely shocked or uh, uniformly professed to be. And sometimes it seems like there's a lot of variation in how closely the cases are investigated, which might have something to do with larger patterns of, of how, you know, seriously state investigating systems take the deaths of different categories of people. So someone, you know, a homeless person dies by suicide. There's probably not going to be a huge investigation. The, the uh, county district attorney does it. Bigger investigation. And so there's limitations to the data. But it does provide a, a picture of a lot of variation that gets lost in the official statistics. And what did you learn from that? Well, one of my main questions was just how common is some sort of interpersonal dispute as a trigger of suicide? And because I came into this research mostly thinking of this category from what I'd read in anthropology. 
And ethnographers who study suicide in tribal or traditional settings, they would talk about these patterns in some of the societies they studied. I knew relatively little about it in the West or in in contemporary America. And so I found that something like 20% of the suicides in this area were what I would class broadly as moralistic suicides in that they seem to be evolving out of interpersonal disputes as the primary triggering event. And a fraction of those, uh, I'm trying to think of the exact statistic. It's in the book, but I'm not very That's okay. good at remembering it. Uh, but a fraction of those are what I would think of as more like overtly sorts of moralistic suicides, where it's not just a result of conflict, but the person clearly was using their death uh, as a weapon, at least partially. They might have been also an escape from an unpleasant situation, but they do things like shoot themselves in front of their ex-girlfriend, like knock on her door, wait for her to answer, then shoot themselves so she has to witness it, or leave notes just condemning another person and, and asking them to feel guilt for what they've driven them to. And these other indications that it was, you know, at least partially an aggressive kind of act against someone left behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the psychoanalysts used to speak about uh, uh, aggression turned inward. But what you're saying is it's, it's aggressiveness outward as well as inward. So, right. It's like yeah. violence turned inward, but, you know, the, the, Aggression can still be turned outward, even if the violence is inward. And this is a, a minority of cases in this, you know, American cities I've studied, and I think in probably in the contemporary West generally. But in some cultures, this is the typical suicide. Um, for example, um, some anthropologists have described peoples in South America or New Guinea where the majority of suicides are explicitly recognized as being about getting back at somebody. And there's a even culturally stereotyped ways of carrying it out to make sure that message gets across. And sometimes it leads to things like vengeance, like, uh, you know, um, uh, the deceased's family might go and physically attack and even kill someone held responsible for driving another person to suicide. So it's a, a attenuated form of this, in the you know American sources I've studied, but it still exists in kind. Like um, like many other behaviors, suicide is contagious. Mm-hmm. Um, it, what do we know about how social contagion works in the area of suicide? Well, this goes back a long time. Um, one of the first sociologists to study this was in the 19th century in France, uh, Gabriel Tarde, whose name I'm probably mispronouncing. But that work has been resurfacing periodically since. And this is not my main area, but it is something that is an area of the sociology of suicide is looking at social contagion. And you see studies of suicide clusters, for example, Uh, suicide tends to cluster in time and place. Or you'll get, you know, a, you know, say there's a small town and one young person commits suicide. And then you know, within a period of a year or so, you'll have an abnormal number of other young people commit suicide subsequently. And it's hard to disentangle the social influence there from other factors that might be explaining the cluster. Maybe there was a lot of whatever other factors influence suicide going on. But it is enough to make one suspicious And one sees other studies looking at things like the impact of celebrity suicide, 
And sometimes after a well-known celebrity commits suicide, there's a spike in the suicide rate that deviates from previous trends and is you know, more than you would expect by random chance. And this has been studied in America. Uh, there's two sociologists, uh, Sefa Bruton and Anna Mueller, who've done a couple of uh, articles on suicide contagion. And also in South Korea, where some of this uh, impact might even be stronger. There was one case where a famous actress committed suicide and the nation's suicide rates went through a very large jump in the period immediately after that. So it seems like when either someone close to a person commits suicide or when someone of particularly high social status and fame commits suicide, it can exert an influence on other people to commit suicide as well. And that makes sense because it seems to be the pattern with just about every other human behavior. People are influenced to adopt behaviors based on people they you know either, either close to and trust or people who have some social standing that they look up to. So suicide would just be following the same pattern of everything else if that's the case. Right. Just much more consequential than right. uh, than other trends. Yeah. <laughs> right. do, do you have some thoughts about the role of mass media and social media in in spreading or preventing suicide? It's mm, a good question. And, you know, my work uh, that led to this book started long enough ago that the media uh, question might be underdeveloped in the book itself. And one thing I thought about in terms of uh, causing suicide would be, I, I, I emphasize the role of conflict and also the role of, uh, for example, humiliations or public uh, shaming as a trigger of suicide. And I think modern media opens up the possibility of doing that on such a massive scale. And I believe there already have been, I don't have like any particular examples in front of me right now, but I've, I've come across a couple of examples of people being committing suicide after some sort of public shaming on social media or attempting suicide after some sort of social media shaming. So I think that as a cause of suicide, that's one particularly modern cause, although really it's a scaled up modern version of sort of shaming when found in tribal and traditional settings as well, where it's also a common trigger of suicide. Yeah, the, the high profile examples of those were, or maybe they're just the ones that made an impression on me, is um, suicide of adolescents after yeah. public shaming on, on social media. And, and in the book, you cite a lot of cross-cultural anecdotes, as well mm -hmm. as what you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, do you have an impression about the role of cultures in such as social stigma or religious prohibitions against mm -hmm. suicide? I have an impression, although not a lot of firm answers. I mean, I, you know, look at abstract factors that one can find in any society, like upward or downward social mobility, or conflict between intimates, or conflict between people of higher and lower status. So those things you find everywhere. And my, my way of looking at the cultural differences that can't be explained by just, you know, more or less of those variables would be cultural differences in sensitivity to those variables. Like it seems there are some cultures where people are just more sensitive to shame. Uh -huh. And um, right. 
you know, the classic term in, in anthropology is like honor culture or sometimes face culture, or sometimes even they say honor shame culture. But it's, it's certain settings, people seem to have like the dial turned up on their sensitivity to those sorts of fail, public failings, slights, and humiliations. And so the pattern is generally the same, like, you know, uh, some sort of big public humiliation increases the risk everywhere, but in some cultures, it increases the risk all the more. And I think the same might be true for a lot of the other patterns we see. It's the same pattern everywhere, but certain settings just seem to emphasize that variable a lot more. And as far as, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, please complete your thought. Go ahead. Oh, because you asked about religious prohibitions. Right. And... I'm always sort of going back and forth on the chicken and the egg here. Did the prohibition arise because this culture already had a negative view of suicide or is it, you know, that the prohibition gave the culture the negative view of suicide? Well, I was wondering whether uh, those differences are reflected in a difference in reporting. Yeah. So maybe, maybe when there are religious or other prohibitions against suicide, they don't get reported as suicide. They get reported differently. That's a possibility. And it's something that people in this field have considered for a long time. I mean, there's a, it's always illustrated with this probably apocryphal story of an Irish Catholic coroner who uh, declared that the deceased accidentally shot himself in the mouth while cleaning his gun with his tongue. Rather than recorded as a suicide, <laughs> uh, but uh, well, it's probably made up. That illustrates the problem of people not wanting to stigmatize or shame the families or the deceased by acknowledging this was something that is is very deviant in that society. So you probably do get some variation in the official rates and statistics based on that. How much variation is the question? I don't know if it's enough to drastically alter our picture of where suicide is frequent. And not frequent, partly because the same thing, you know, the stigmatization and shame of it might actually also make it less likely to happen in the first place. So the trends will be pointing in the same way. Right. And it's probably impossible to distinguish one from the other in the data. Um, According to the CDC, the overall suicide rate in the United States rose by 40% from the year 2000 to 2017, mm-hmm. which really stunned me when I read that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think was happening that explains such a steep increase? I think to answer it well, we'd have to actually go back to the case level again and start looking at you know, samples of individual cases. Why are people doing it? But I would point my suspicions at two factors. Uh, One is something that sociologists have known about for over a century, which is the role of social integration, social cohesiveness in preventing suicide. This is French sociologist Emile Durkheim, uh, considered a founder of the field. He wrote the seminal book on suicide. And that was his main, one aspect of his theory was uh, that suicide varies inversely with social integration. And there's been a little bit of, you know, evolution and how we use that term since then. But nowadays, basically, it means how tied to society someone is, how, you know, how many social connections they have, the nature and the quality and, and closeness of their connections. And we've also had a very long-term trend in those things declining. You know, And this is the sort of decline of social capital stuff people talk about, the bowling alone argument, mm-hmm. um, increasing you know, 
pe- numbers of people reporting that they're friendless, that they are single, that they are celibate, that they are whatever. And so, and you know, communities breaking up and moving around and so forth. So we might've had an increase in that uh, predisposing people or making people who are already predisposed, you know, more vulnerable to suicide. That'd be one thing I would look at. And the other thing would be social mobility. And again, that goes back to Durkheim as well, who pointed out, and I think it was even a well-known trend at his time, that suicide rates spike during economic downturns and crises. And one of the things I argue in the book is that this is incredibly well-supported after a century of research on suicide, that downward mobility is dangerous. And we've had you know, the Great Recession, and we've had the uneven recovery where, you know, for the bottom half of the distribution, things didn't get much better after the recession ended. And then we've had the shocks of COVID since then. So I would be expecting a lot of this increase to be due to a combination of weakened social ties and weakened uh, economic factors. So leading to more downward mobility. And does it make a difference whether the downward mobility is starts out at a higher level or a lower level? Hmm. I would predict, my, my theory would predict that the greater the decline, the greater the risk. I don't talk a lot about absolute levels of well-being, but I would, I would imagine that the further someone falls, the greater the risk. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, since you mentioned the pandemic, uh, let's uh, finally look at that since we're in the middle of it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, social distance, economic losses, grief, which I think is very widespread. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what does your theory predict will be the impact of COVID-19 on suicide? Well, I... I have stated, semi-publicly anyway, that I expected there to be a rise in suicides over the past year owing to greater isolation and uh, the economic impacts on a large number of people. So far, I'm not sure if that's going to turn out to be empirically correct. I've seen mixed evidence from different sources. And so if it's not correct, I'm curious as to why not. If it is correct, it's less mysterious to me. So I would expect when it, all the data shakes out, because usually the, the official statistics of different countries, you know, come in at different times and, and there's a lot of lag in reporting things. I would expect when it shakes out, we'll find some increase in age adjusted rates. I think it's going to be uneven, though. I think it's going to be very uneven if it does occur. For example, um, you know, there's, I've heard this term recently, you know, the Zoom classes. You know, like this right. is different, different, different ways of describing social class in, in, in modern society. And so the Zoom <laughs> class is the class where you still work, but you work through Zoom right. versus uh, if you're waiting tables and you, your restaurants closed for two months, you're just out of work. <laughs> yeah. And the Zoom classes will be better off, less likely to have a rise in suicide. That would be my expectation. And, I think this and, is going to hit the working class harder if it hits anybody hard at all. Yeah. Right. Well, we're already hearing, uh, reading reports of other forms of violence on the rise, both mm-hmm. uh, 
domestic violence, mm-hmm. uh, child abuse, uh, other other forms of do- domestic violence, as well as in some areas, um, more criminality. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it may be the kind that you spoke about at the beginning that people need money, so <laughs> they rob. Mm-hmm. Um, What's the relationship with those other forms between suicide and those other forms of violence? I would say complicated because it really depends <laughs> yeah. on what That's honest. we're yeah. talking about. Um, some things I've gotten into have, have been uh, the relationship between like f- forms of violence that combine suicide or at least some degree of self-destructive behavior with external violence. So like suicide attacks for example, or um, what they call homicide suicide or murder suicide, mm-hmm. where you know, the, the perpetrator kills somebody and then kills himself right after. And I, I view the latter as almost like a hybrid form of behavior that's like suicide and homicide mixed. And it seems the suicide is in some way often primary. Like that's, it's not, it's not as you might suspect that it's someone commits murder then feels remorse and then kills themselves as a kind of punishment afterwards or out of grief or whatever. Usually they plan suicide from the beginning and plan to take the person with them. And it's in the large majority of cases, uh, it arises out of domestic conflict. It's typically a man who kills his estranged wife or girlfriend and then kills himself right after. And sometimes these guys will even threaten during the relationship, if you leave me, I will kill us both. And they follow through on it. And so I try to look at how the structure of that conflict in some ways resembles the structure of conflicts that just lead to suicide and in some ways resembles the ones that just lead to homicide and explain it as a hybrid form. And that's just one example of how suicide interacts with other types of violence. There's an old theory that suicide and homicide vary Inversely, that the more of one you get in society, the less of the other you get. I don't yes, know I, I've how, heard that. how true that is. But it seems like in really violent places, like, you know, um, think of your most violent ghetto neighborhoods in, in the U.S. with lots of shootings and so forth. Or maybe like uh, tribal settings where like there's a lot of feuding and raiding going back and forth between groups. It seems like when you have a really high homicide setting, suicidal people sometimes commit suicide indirectly by just engaging in lots of risky attacks against their enemies or by provoking their enemies to kill them, sort of death by battle. Uh-huh. So it might offer a kind of alternative that was more fitting with the sort of tough guy or honor ethos of those settings. Yes, there was, there was a time when it was... Uh popular to discuss uh, the phenomenon of suicide by cop, mm-hmm. and which is kind of what you're talking about, but in, in a warrior setting. Uh, mm-hmm. is, is that right? Is that the yeah, same idea? Yeah. yeah, suicide by cop is something I would like to study more. I, I haven't looked at it very closely, but it's fascinating to me just as a question of um, why would you get someone else to do it for you? <laughs> like, why would you recruit an executioner for yourself and what explains when that happens. And I think some of it might be what I hinted at partly having a, a culture of fighting or toughness or something like that, where it's better to 
be killed by someone else and kill yourself. Right. Or perhaps, and this gets back to what you said earlier about religious prohibitions, there was a pattern in early modern Europe where people who wanted to commit suicide but not go to hell for the sin of <laughs> committing suicide would commit murder so they would be executed. <laughs> and they could give confession for the murder before they were executed and thus have their sins cleansed. It was like a loophole. Huh. A loophole in God's laws. <laughs> so uh, it, was, it was often resorted to by young women, actually, who would commit infanticide, not on their own children, but someone else's. And uh, mostly because it was a, a you know pure innocent victim and also one who went and fight back. Mm, that's a gruesome <laughs> idea. But yeah, Jason, uh, you've given us an interesting perspective on the unfortunately growing phenomenon of death by suicide. Mm -hmm. I hope it can help society design some effective interventions. I don't know if you've had any thoughts about that. I haven't developed it as much as I'd like since I focus more on the just identifying the patterns, but I do talk about a little bit towards the end of the book, you know, having done this, it really should broaden our view of what prevention means. And here again, I'm not arguing against any of the normal things like, like psychiatric help and, and antidepressants, cognitive behavioral therapy, all that stuff's great. But, you know, we might want to broaden our view of what causes suicide and thus what can prevent it. Examples I talk about are things like uh, there was a Japanese township that had a problem with suicide and, and instituted financial relief as their prevention method, because they realized a lot of the suicides were due to financial stress. And that lowered, or at least afterwards, their suicide rate went down, indicating that it lowered their suicide rate. So helping people out financially might be a tactic of suicide prevention. Or so might supporting them in a conflict. If somebody is you know, resorting to suicide because they, they face an uphill battle and some interpersonal conflict and have no moral support, offering them some support, even like a place to stay and, and get out of the conflict, helping them avoid it without resorting to death, that could be a form of suicide prevention. And so we need to broaden our horizons and think about the actual concrete circumstances that can drive people to it and how to alleviate those circumstances. Well, those are really good points. Uh, but before I let you go, uh, can you tell us what you're working on now? What I'm working on now, I am working on, uh, I'm working with some grad students to do a study of Supreme Court appeals uh, state at the state Supreme Court in West Virginia, uh, here trying to test a theory of how the relationships between the parties affect the likelihood of a successful appeal. I'm also with my sometimes co-author Bradley Campbell discussing some ideas for describing the impact of the pandemic. And so we're interested in studying conflict. And it seems like the pandemic has exacerbated conflict around the globe and within countries and across all kinds of relationships. And so we're interested in trying to explain that. Well, that's really important. <laughs> I, I, uh, I appreciate your time. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank you very much for coming on the show and sharing your important work. Thank you. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.